Hey guys, Sonali here. We're working really hard to bring new episodes to you and we should have something for you soon. But in the meantime, here's a rebroadcast of one of our earlier episodes on sales strategy and operations in tech. Enjoy. Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now on today's show we are going to be talking about sales strategy and operations and to help us understand this area our guest on today's show is Pradarshni Rauth who is a director of sales strategy and operations at Salesforce IQ. Salesforce IQ is a company that was acquired by Salesforce very recently this was sometime in 2014 and Salesforce I'm sure you're all familiar with it is a leading customer relationship management software company and is in fact a public company based out of San Francisco. Pradarshni has been with Salesforce IQ for a little over a year and a half now and prior to that she was a senior manager for Kindle content acquisition at Amazon and before that she has done a whole bunch of other things. Pradarshni was in consulting for a while. She was a business analyst with McKinsey and Company and she was also in business development at Cisco for some time for a little over three years. In terms of her educational background, Pradarshini has a bachelor's in actually quite a few things. We will ask her how that happened. She has a bachelor's in economics, finance, strategic management and computer science from University of Pennsylvania. And she also has an MBA in marketing and operations from the Wharton School. All right. So I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. And without further ado, let's welcome Pradarshini. Pradarshini, hello, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. I have been trying to get a hold of you for so long. So you moved to Bay Area a year and a half ago and the only way I could actually meet you was because of this podcast. <laughs> True. You make me sound inaccessible, Sonali. You are inaccessible. Uh, but okay, so first thing which I'm very curious about, as I was looking at your profile, it seems that you have a bachelor's in four different subjects. Right? Economics, finance, strategic management, and computer science. You didn't mention my minor in mathematics. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> How is that possible? In the same in the same duration, 2001 to 2006. Yeah, um, well, <clears throat> so um, a, a Penn undergrad is, uh, that's where I went. It's, uh, so Penn is actually organized into four different schools. Uh, you have a school of engineering, a school, um, Wharton School, which is the school of business, if you will, and then a nursing as well as the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, so I was cross-registered across two schools, Wharton and the School of Engineering. So in School of Engineering, my major is computer science. In Wharton, we don't really have majors at the undergrad level. You have concentrations. So my concentrations were in finance and strategic management. So, so you still studied like quite things. a few subjects at the quite same Quite a few time. subjects, quite a few areas, yes. And I'm guessing, guessing this is not normal, right? Like this is not the typical undergrad student <clears> at UPenn. I mean, I wouldn't know, quite honestly. But um, yeah, double majors and dual degrees are definitely a small sliver of the entire population. Mm. But it's not entirely like I wouldn't say that I'm like a unicorn or something. <laughs> okay, Because <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. Which one should I mention? There are like five of these. I think it just says that I'm scatterbrained. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. And uh, 
we will be talking about what does someone in sales strategy and operations do. So mm-hmm. uh, what I was thinking we could start with is if you can just share your your career path briefly with us so far and what led you to finally be doing sales strategy and ops in Salesforce IQ. Got it. Um, so as you mentioned in the introduction, um, out of college, I actually started in management consulting. So worked for a couple of years at McKinsey, where like any other management consultant, I dabbled in a whole bunch of different industries, bunch of different uh, problems. Mm-hmm. Um, really speaking, I think it would be quite a challenge to find a theme from uh, management consulting days. Um, but one of the most important things that um, that first stint helped me realize was that ultimately I wanted to um, own a function within mm-hmm. a company. I wanted to be a line manager and uh, preferably be in some kind of like, you know, a general manager role at some point in my career. So every subsequent decision I've made is essentially, at least I tell myself that it's in pursuit of that um, larger aim. Mm-hmm. So out of McKinsey, um, I went to Cisco with the idea of focusing on one industry, technology, studied engineering in school. So that was a little bit of um, the appeal over there. And I wanted to also see how, um, like after that decision, um, like, you know, after a recommendation has been agreed upon, how does the decision actually get operationalized? How do some of the things work in the guts of a company? This is this is compared mm-hmm. to your consulting job. Compared right? to my consulting job. Because in consulting, you would just stop at the recommendation you wanted to get into the actual implementation of that recommendation. Right. Or at least have some visibility into it. Right. So I went to do business development, really more corporate strategy at Cisco. Again, um, learned a ton about the technology industry and uh, Cisco had a wide portfolio of businesses. I got to understand how infrastructure is different than software, is different mm-hmm. than certain applications and uh, or is different than uh, networking, which was uh, Cisco's core bread and butter. It gave me a great sense of what that landscape looked like. Mm-hmm. And uh, largely my job at Cisco was still advisory. So I partnered with a lot of different product GMs, in some cases, people more on the distribution side. So I did a bunch of things uh, sales focused, but I wouldn't say that I had tremendous exposure to sales in my time Mm. at Cisco. But it gave me a great general understanding of businesses. And it's and at least in the scope of my projects, it gave me a chance to do things more end to end where I would come up with, um, you know, a certain like we'd identify a problem, identify what the right thing to do over Mm. there is, and also have some sense of how to actually do that and push it over the finish line. Um, I went to business school after that. And coming out of business school, um, what I really wanted to do was um, focus on that execution piece. Um, and so um, and for a few years, I had wanted to own a PL. I wanted to find out what that experience PNL is profit, profit and loss yeah. uh, statement. So essentially be held responsible to a number. I wanted to figure out like, you know, is this something that I would like to do later on in life? I've always glamorized it in my head. What does it really look like? So that's what took me to Amazon. Um, because most tech companies are single PL companies. Mm. But if you um, look in e-commerce or consumer goods, retail, these are places where people, I would consider myself still an early career professional. Mm. So I think in early career, you have the chance to own a PL, a, a PL yeah, big okay. or small. Yeah. Um, I found myself at Amazon suddenly gifted close to a billion dollar PL. And wow. I was like, who is this person who is trusting me to do this job? So you you own. That, so when you say you own the billion dollar PNL, what does that mean? Um, what that means is essentially that I'm responsible for both the top line growth as well as managing cost initiatives that feed into the PNL. 
So a million dollars was a revenue that that particular correct was yeah. generating. Okay. Yeah, and this is like it's Amazon scale, so practically every business operates uh, for at sure. that scale. Yeah. So I don't think I could uh, replicate well, this that's a big quite deal. a different company. So like your yeah. job would have been to try and improve the profit you're making on that billion dollar in revenue. That's that's definitely a one way yeah. uh, of defining it. Okay. Yeah. All yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And then and then what brought you to Salesforce IQ then? And then um, so did that for a while um, at Amazon. Enjoyed that general management thinking, but realized that retail, um, which is essentially the part of Amazon that I worked in wasn't where my passion was. I wanted to come back to technology. I had gotten this amazing general management experience. I had certainly gotten implementation experience because everything there, any initiative that I came up with, I also drove right to the end. Like whether it be like, you know, writing copy or uh, like, you know, handling the customer issues, escalations, whatever it is, everything came to my desk. Uh, So it was exciting, but I wanted to parlay that experience and bring it back to technology. So I didn't, because my career path hasn't been one where I can talk about, like, you know, there isn't a function that I have, like, for instance, marketing or sales or product that I have worked in for a long time. So I don't necessarily bring that experience to the table. But so I didn't, um, it would be hard for me to transition directly to a function, at least my own hypothesis. Hmm. So what I decided to do was to step back into the advisory side Hmm. where I had, like, you know, I had the strategy skill set. But this time to be very close to a function, in this case, the distribution function, sales and post sales, Mm. and also do it within a smaller company where I would have much uh, greater visibility and participation in the decision making. I see. And so when you joined Salesforce IQ, you had just been acquired by Salesforce, right? No, I actually joined a year after the acquisition. A year after but the Salesforce IQ was still a very small, very company. small company. Yeah, We were only about I don't know, 120, 130 people maybe when I joined. Yeah. And I think today we're probably at 250. So definitely bit, yeah, skyrocketing yeah. growth. Yeah. So it was interesting to see the scaling stage of a business as well. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, at least compared to every other organization I've been part of, this I consider very small. Yeah, you know, for sure. <laughs> and why sales? What made you pick sales as opposed to other functions? Um, I think, um, uh, you know, you're making me realize that my decisions weren't as thoughtful as I thought they were. Um, which, is, which is true for a lot of people, right? No, <laughs> right. Just in case, it's just always good to probe because you never know, yeah. you know what might have gone behind yeah. that decision. No, I, I'm, uh, sure. I think um, I, I think what appealed to me about it was that, so when I think about Salesforce, even in the industry, it has a great deal of credibility as an amazing distribution machine. Hmm. Cisco definitely had that too. Like a lot of people would tell you that Cisco is more of a sales-driven company, whereas I think when people think of Apple, for instance, people think of it as more of a product-driven product, yeah. company, right? So I think there was a little bit of that. But the other piece was also, in all the jobs that I had done, I felt like the skills that I had picked up um, and and the way I approach, like any problem that you give me, I always approach it from a general manager's standpoint. So to be able to ask questions like, how do I hit like, you know, my uh, top line revenue? Like, what are some of the growth initiatives I want to put in place? How do I essentially like look at how the business is performing, um, figure out like, you know, what are the breakpoints, if you will, and what I need to change there? That was kind of the job I was doing at Amazon. That was a B2C or a business to consumer environment. I could parlay that same thinking if I was close to sales in a business-to-business environment. So I think okay. I felt like it was a good um, good, fit, g- for, a good fit for my skills. I yeah. see. Okay. 
All right. So if you can give us a very brief overview of what the Salesforce IQ do, IQ does, and in as layman's terms as possible, <laughs> <laughs> I will try. Um, um, so um, Salesforce IQ started its life as Relate IQ. Hmm. Um, it was um, founded actually by a few Stanford GSB students. And the the problem that they essentially identified in the market was that you have customer relationship management software, which is valuable to any and all businesses. However, in the low end of the market, which is where they decided to start, there were two distinct problems. One was that um, like if you think about cloud CRM, like Salesforce, the parent company today, essentially is the incumbent in that space. And then, of course, you've got like on-prem CRM, uh, like, you know, a whole bunch of other um, older tech companies play in that space. Um, but the tough part is that it still takes like, you know, time and money to deploy some of these applications and they can be um, and they're also complicated in terms of getting your data in there. Um, so small businesses um, want something that's easy to deploy, that's like, you know, out of the box, intuitive. They're not going to hire like an Accenture or whatever of the world to help them in their transitions. So um, that's the need that Salesforce IQ um, so in, in my to view, deploy. Like it makes deployment it's easier to deploy. It's much, much more intuitive. Like if you look at okay. it, the interface of Salesforce IQ, it looks like a spreadsheet. Everybody has been in Excel at right. some point. Right. So it's much easier for them to get started. Um, and there's like, I'm, I'm really like, this is where a product manager can speak so much more eloquently. No, but this is helpful. Yeah. yeah just, that's just to the, paint, cause, uh, you know, a lot of your description of your job, et cetera, will be in the context of, you know, what Salesforce IQ yeah. does. So just yeah. trying to get some understanding. Yeah. And sure. so, so customer relationship management software, just for listeners who might not be familiar, is just at a very high level. It's a software that sort of keeps track of all your clients and, you know, the deals that you've had and how, how to just continue that relationship. And what Salesforce IQ does is that it just makes the deployment of that software a lot easier, as well as as well as the software itself is a lot more intuitive and easier to use. Uh, that's correct. And okay. it, it, it actually is the solution. So it's not just, it's not like a plugin to make something easy okay. to deploy. It has it's its just own. An, it, it is its own CRM. I see. Uh, completely. So you can track your sales process. You can track like, you know, any number of post sales processes, et cetera, that you might be um, uh, uh, that you might have Got implemented it. for customers. It's just easier to deploy in itself and also much, much more right. intuitive to interact with. Right. And then Salesforce IQ actually brought out a second product and a third product. Now it's kind of expanded from that sure. starting. Yeah. yeah, so we also have like a inbox application, which essentially makes it a lot easier for a mobile salesperson. So you can essentially do all your transactions out of a mobile. Um, it has a nice suite of productivity features. And on the back end, it also, you're able to log everything uh, to your CRM. So it's essentially piggybacks off of um, the main Salesforce product. Gotcha. And then more recently, for people following the news, there have been a bunch of um, announcements around Einstein. Some of that was also uh, developed. Um, that's your AI team. stuff? That's correct. Okay, got yeah. it. Okay, we don't have to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and so, so I think what's also important to call out over here is that your customers are businesses, right? Other businesses. Correct. Which is why you have a sales team. Mm -hmm. that goes out and sells to these mm -hmm. businesses, right? So here I would then ask you that if you can give us a description of what is like your job, what is sales strategy and operations, how would you describe it? Yeah. Um, so um, but I think about sales strategy and operations and the things that my team does, um, I think of it in a few different buckets. 
Um, so let's talk a little about sales operations. It's the more uh, traditional thing in the industry that uh, most, uh, I mean, practically all B2B companies will have such a function uh, to support their sales team. Um, so it comes in a bunch of different flavors. So on the sales side, um, you're probably going to have to figure out uh, questions like when you have a sales team, like what are the territories that like how do how do you allocate territories across mm-hmm. your sales team? How do you compensate the sales team? Like, you know, what what are those structural design philosophies, if you will, of compensation? How do you set goals and quotas for the sales team? So these are very traditional sales ops uh, tasks. Okay. And um, that's like, you know, one piece of the puzzle. In other sales operations teams, this is not true of my team uh, because we leverage uh, Salesforce's operational capabilities for this. You will also usually find people who are doing a lot of like, you know, contract processing, order processing, billing, all of that. All of those operational oh, tasks can yeah. also sometimes live which is, within which the sales Which you might call like post-sales or like completing a transaction. They're really to complete a transaction. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. call them post-sales. Okay. So on the post-sales side, because my team does look across both sales and post-sales, I think the equivalent of this would be like if you have renewal managers or if you have customer success managers. Again, how do you allocate territories? How do you set the right goals, quotas, compensation, etc.? So anything to get these teams aligned in the right way hmm. to be able to achieve your top line goals is sort of like one bucket of things that usually a sales uh, a sales operations function or a post sales operations right. function will right. do. So this is, this is very good. So what you're talking about is that sales operations has a lot of uh, things that you will need. So mm-hmm. you, you will first set a goal for your sales team that mm-hmm. I want to meet X revenue or mm-hmm. whatever. And then to operationalize getting to mm-hmm. that goal, that's what all of this includes, including things like territory and compensation and all that. Correct. Can you describe a little bit of some of these? Like, for example, I think territory allocation is a pretty interesting area. How, how, like, what are the kind of things that you would be thinking about to figure out how to allocate territory? Um, so again, it depends a lot on like, you know, what, like w- what you're trying to optimize for. Um, so let's say um, like there's a whole bunch of different models, right? Like at the very simplest end of the spectrum, you could almost do this round robin and not even do like a territory carving mm-hmm. model. You will probably have this in very rudimentary sales teams when you don't have a sense of how many transactions are coming in and what the geographic distribution is. Um, for a sales team that's slightly more mature, you would think about things like, okay, you might uh, carve them by geography. Mm-hmm. Um, you might, um, you would also strive for, to the extent that people have like, you know, similar goals or similar quotas to hit, you would strive for equitability across the way you carve territories. You um, Equitability, you mean like similar size of territory? Correct, okay. yes, because yeah. the territory essentially... Um, in some sense, um, represents the opportunity right. for a salesperson to hit the limit the amount of quota that, or the number of deals you can get. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. So you would um, use, like, you know, you want to be careful about equitability. Um, I think the other thing that um, as you're setting up, this is more of a segmentation thing um, that comes in. For instance, do you want to have, like, you probably don't want one team that covers everything from the smallest accounts to the biggest accounts because sales motions in those types of accounts can look different. It also comes down to building career paths for your what sales What is sales people. motion? So like, you know, what, what a deal cycle essentially looks like. So let's say if you were, like, let's talk about Salesforce, the parent company for a second, because they have a much wider spectrum. So an enterprise deal looks very different, like selling to a Coca-Cola or selling to, um, I don't know, Tesla or pick whoever you want. Um, essentially, would they, they might be like, you know, deals which will take multiple months. Mm-hmm. Often these will be like multi-million dollar deals. They will be a lot more 
more complex. They're usually not one product deals. They're going to be multi-product. And um, the, the, all the negotiations and even painting the picture, the, the skills you need to sell into those types of accounts can be very different than look at the opposite spectrum, like the emerging small businesses segment that Salesforce, for instance, has, where essentially it's very high velocity. It's like, think of it like a team where your sales development team ships you leads hmm. and you call into those leads and in, yeah. and in many cases like maybe in two calls you're closing a deal so that would never smaller happen businesses, right? exactly yeah okay. right so you figure out like you know what is your sales motion look and figure out like how you want to carve like segments if you okay. will okay. Um, so we obviously have a much smaller microcosm because we are focusing on that lower end whereas right. if you look at a company with the scale and size of Salesforce you have a lot of different segments right. over there right um, so those are uh, some, some considerations, okay. yeah, that you would what think about, about in territories. I, you know, just just to get into some of the yeah. nuances of details, yeah, that you sure. Might be thinking about um, on um, quotas, it's really about making um, uh, making an estimation of uh, what you think um, the productivity of your sales team can be, hmm. right? Like you're giving them a number goal hmm. to hit every month, hmm. so it's based on your feel. Mm-hmm. of um, what that, uh, like, you know, what, what a salesperson's capacity to hit a number is given a certain opportunity. Is quota set per salesperson or is it at, at, at like, some team level? Um, it can be, it actually can vary. Mm-hmm. So in most sales team, uh, individual AEs will have quotas. Okay. Sometimes when, so again, all of this depends a lot on the maturity of your business and the maturity of your team. So, for instance, if you had a brand new product and there are like in, um, so I'll give you a specific example from Salesforce IQ today. So on our sales team, because we've been selling for a while and we have a sense of what the productivity of um, the sales team can look like. So on the sales side, our quotas are a lot more nuanced. For instance, we will have quotas based on is somebody covering the very lowest end or is somebody carrying sort of like the mid end or like the top end of our business yeah. quotas will vary by that. Um, whereas, and, and quotas are individual. So every AE, in essentially if every AE who is covering a certain part of the business is held to a similar quota. On the renewal manager side, where essentially they're doing the same thing, they're just working with a different existing set of accounts, customer, yeah. existing customers and trying to renew that book, we've actually kept team quotas. Part of that is because we still don't have, we feel, uh, the best understanding of exactly like you know how much um, someone can bring like we're getting to the point where we might do it in yeah. uh, in the future in the near future we might look at individual quotas so I think it varies it a little bit by that it. as well yeah. I see okay so it's like when you but, feel yeah but quota I'm sure there's a lot there's there's a lot of art as well as science behind this right because yeah. it, I wasn't reading this in the context of quotas but this was in the context of something else but it's just like uh, goal setting at a very high level if you set something which is too much of a stretch it mm-hmm. can be demoralizing because Correct. it's like how am I even supposed to get there yeah. and if it's too low then it's not inspiring enough Yeah. so h- how do you do that balancing yeah. act? It's um, like I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that you know it's as much art as uh, science it's really really tough and if I if I flatter myself that I've made all the right decisions, then yeah. that's not true. Yeah. It, it it's 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 very hard. I think what you're talking about is exactly the uh, we always have that at the back of our minds. Um, as the business matures more and more, you're able to make more educated guesses. You have like you know better data. For instance, you would look at what the distribution of attainment 
across different AEs is account AEs executives, is area. Um, account executives, i.e., the sales reps, right? So if you uh, look at the distribution, you have a better sense of whether, uh, like, whether someone's an outlier or whether it's like somewhat concentrated across around a certain number. That might give you comfort that okay, that's probably like you know a fair quota to set. But what you just mentioned is absolutely yeah. the tricky part of this, and there is no right answer. And I I'm think sure part over of a is, period of time, you you keep on refining. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. it's iteration, refinement, and also maturity and experience, and okay. that's the reason, like you know, why you have people who have done this before also involved For in sure. these exercises. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So, so this was sales ops. So you talked about like things like territory compensation. Yeah. Um, Yeah, contract. I think the one piece that I didn't mention in sales ops is that there's also, especially in a startup context, there's a bunch of things around systems Hmm. because the systems that you put in place um, and the processes that you put in place can be fundamentally can fundamentally affect um, the outcomes and the efficiency of your sales team. Hmm. So we spend a lot of time understanding, like you know, which CRM we should use, what kind of statuses we should track, making sure that you know sales the sales team is following, yeah, discipline in terms of how they're tracking. And mon- like pipeline like setting data, up, like why did we win a deal? Why did we lose a deal? All of that, right? And then even forecasting, right? Like for a sales manager to be able to forecast and have a sense of have some forward visibility of where the month will close, hmm. you need like a lot of hygiene, if you will, around how you're tracking all of these deals. So part of sales ops's jobs, and again, it, it depends on the maturity, but sometimes a sales ops person might be the person who's actually implementing that first instance of. Salesforce or any other CRM software within their business, and then setting up the policies and processes to track the data it. and making sure that sales team is adhering to like correct actually yeah. logging yeah. all of those details. Yeah, I mean it's jointly owned, obviously, with the sales manager because ultimately they will have direct, uh, like you know, the direct influence yeah. uh, ability. But it's also a pretty critical part of uh, sales ops. Got it. Okay, so that was sales ops. <clears throat> um, what about sales strategy? Yeah. Um, so uh, as um, I, I know that I'm the one who kind of made a little bit of a false distinction, if you will, <laughs> between like the ops and strategy side, because I think these these words honestly mean different things to different people and where you draw the line is up to you. But I would say that in typical sales ops or sales strategy and ops functions, these are all the things you would do. Um, things like I talked about the very operational task of really like, you know, supporting the team and op- and making sure that the team is um, like, you know, essentially operationalized to hit a certain target. But equally important, whether you define this as strategy or ops, is a lot of funnel analysis that we do. Um, so, um, as you think about, <clears throat> like as a, um, as a manager of a business, if you're held accountable to a number, there's not a lot, um, like a lot of people actually focus on what's the revenue I brought in. Huh. I would argue, and this is something I learned at Amazon, that that's actually not the most important thing that you should be focusing on. Hmm. Because you can't do very much with something which is so much of a downstream metric. Hmm. By that time, it's like the game has been played. Hmm. If you want to have any influence and if you want to be able to tinker around with levers, you need to look a lot more upstream. So you want to monitor every uh, part of your sales funnel, starting from the time like any upstream demand generation activities you do. You would want to capture all of that. You want to make sure like, you know, how many of those leads that demand gen is kind of coming up with, like what's the number, what's the quality of those leads. Then like sales development, which is which is usually the first function you have who like, you know, they'll probably pick up a phone. Um, So sales development, what they... um, 
the way to think about like why you usually have that gating function is that your sales reps, you don't want to like when demand gen is um, coming up with leads, some of them are like, you know, high, high likelihood to close type of prospects. And then there's low likelihood to close prospects. So actually, let me stop you right there. So before we get into the details, yeah. can you at a very high level, tell us what is what does that funnel look like? What are the stages in that funnel? Yeah, um, good, uh, good question. So I would think about at least when I think about our funnel, it's I would think about demand generation, sales development, and then the actual sale. And then, of course, there's like post sales after that. Okay. It's kind of how I like the functions organized yeah. in uh, in uh, order. Right. In and in at the, the top, you have demand generation. Correct. So these are the guys who are actively going out and getting deals. No. So the way I think about demand generation is that um, they're essentially getting you leads. That's the, okay. that's how I Not even deals, leads. Yeah, okay. leads. Yeah. Right. So uh, what are, what are some demand gen activities? Um, and again, this depends a lot on the segment of the business. If you're playing like in a small business segment, like we do a lot of uh, the traditional channels you might use are things like, um, like, you know, uh, paid, um, like paid social or search engine marketing, I see, I see. right? Your website probably won't drive as much. So, whereas so for sales, like course, awareness. Um, yeah, whoever and slightly is, more, slightly more, slightly more than just awareness. It's it's more than awareness. I think awareness is part of it, but making sure that you actually drive to actual leads hmm. uh, that someone can then like you know pick up the phone and call and I find see. out like what is their likelihood to close. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So that's demand yeah. generation. That's and demand then, generation. Yeah. And then after that, you said is sales development. Then you have sales development, at least for us. Hmm. Um, so the reason uh, most companies will have a sales dev function is because so sales reps. If you give them, like if you inundate them with leads of all different qualities, your sales reps will be wasting a lot of time picking up the phone and calling people who are probably never going to buy, right? So you want a sales dev person or somebody, you want some kind of a gating mechanism over there to be able to figure out which are those high prospects. It's like lead qualification. Yes, exactly. That's essentially what they're doing. They're qualifying leads. And uh, at, I mean, at the broadest level, I'm simplifying very much over here. What they're essentially doing is anything which is high likelihood, they send down the sales funnel. Gotcha. Whereas something that's low likelihood, you might actually send back to marketing and marketing might do like nurture campaigns with them to okay, get to them to a point where you feel that they will be high so likelihood. So like maturing them. <laughs> Precisely. Okay. Yeah. I see. Okay. Right. And then you, you send stuff down the pipeline. You're not ready to buy this yet. How <laughs> <laughs> can we get you ready? Okay, got it. So that's sales. Uh, that's, sales that's the sales development. development function. Yeah. Then you have sales itself. Then or, you have sales yeah. itself, right? then the account executives take over and usually they are the people who are closing things. And then finally you have post sales and in post sales, I see a bunch of different types of functions. So some of them will be involved in like the early onboarding, driving engagement, because those are the things that will drive better renewal outcomes at the end of a year. So for us, most of our contracts are annual contracts and you have renewals, people who are actually going to close these deals when they come up for renewal. And I think the other very critical thing that post sales also uh, plays a part in, at least for us, is in driving upsells and upgrades. Right, right, right. So like you, you're you on level one package. Why don't you buy level Correct. two package or something? Okay, exactly. Got it. Yeah. So you said that one big part of your job as in sales ops and strategy is to monitor this funnel right from demand generation, mm-hmm. because the more demand generation you have, mm-hmm. the more sales you'll have. Uh, at, at a very maybe. high level. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. So that's Depends the on the quality. Why, 
Precisely. That's the reason why you do all of this funnel analysis, right? Okay. It's not just quality. If you think about it, it can also be capacity, right? You, uh, Let's say demand gen is doing a fabulous job, sends a whole bunch of quality leads, huh. but your sales development function isn't adequately resourced. Huh. They aren't able to follow up with all of those leads, right? right? So you will, okay, exactly. that's very interesting. So, so these are all the problems that you want to keep a very close eye on. Yeah. Like where are the capacity constraints? Where are things breaking? And what are the reasons why it's breaking? And essentially that is what I, that, that I think is the most exciting part of my job because um, when I'm able to do that level of analysis, I'm able to identify what are the things I'm going to change in the business and that essentially helps me uh, like you know, sure. drive towards and the And here target. if you're able to spot like the right gaps, I'm sure the impact is of like like an immediate significant impact, right? Like suddenly you open up yourself to many more leads or many more conversions it by just be. adding like a few yeah. more people. Can, can you be. share an example maybe that comes to mind? Or uh, around... So, around like you know something that you did in this funnel analysis and something that you found which led to like a big change um yeah um the reason i laugh is because i think like the last year of my life has been like you know a lot of yeah a, a, a lot of small changes Sometimes they're not necessarily big changes, but small changes that actually did, um, like, you know, incrementally get us to better and better places. So um, we, for instance, we heard a lot of complaints from our sales development uh, people at points that, hey, we're not getting the right quality of leads from demand gen. So we've gone back and looked at what channels end up converting better versus what have not. And we've um, substantially changed the way we allocate funds. um, So when you say channels, like, as in, like... uh Leads coming through LinkedIn versus exactly versus like you know display ads etc. Each okay. of them will have like a different conversion profile because you're uh, because people with different types of intent mm-hmm. are essentially captured in each of these channels. Um, then another very concrete example that comes to mind from my early days is um, we were moving Salesforce IQ like we wanted to go global. We do sell the product globally today, but not when I had started. And and so I worked on um, the pilot program for getting us into UK. Um, And at the time, we only had one account executive dedicated to the UK. And we knew that there was more opportunity over there but we just weren't resourced as a team to, um, you know, put more resources over there and be able to milk all of that opportunity. Uh So we made the case for expanding the UK team. So it went from one to actually six people this year. And um, the UK business, and especially after we sent people into the UK to actually be in market, it's um, uh, like what we close these days is like it's almost like the first time we had a full team over there we closed 2x that month versus the month right, before right. so that's the kind that's, of impact you can that's make, pretty right? immediate impact okay. yeah yeah awesome so yeah so you said that and I guess right now we're still more in the realm of sales ops than sales strategy. Right? I would co- consider it uh, like, again, like I don't okay. like the monikers. I really don't know because each person defines it <laughs> so true, differently. Yeah. yeah, I'd say it's on the borderline hmm. because I would think that some of these are very strategic questions as well in my hmm. mind. Yeah. Right. But the way I think about it is that there is a piece around which is operational activities to stand up the team every day. And then there's a set of questions around decisions that you will make which will help you hit a revenue target right. and I kind of put this more yeah. in that second okay. bucket of things. So then is there anything else within this function like anything? Yeah like, uh, I think other stuff that we do so I'm kind of thinking through like where my team spends its time um, 
there so off and on you will get involved in i suppose more longer term strategic questions if you will from a distribution angle so for instance given um the data that we have about customers about the way we go to market um when we were revisiting like you know what pricing and packaging strategy should look like for some of our uh, uh for some of our offerings then we can our, my be. team yeah would oh, get that, that that sales so again there's like it's Let's say we work in partnership mm-hmm. because there's definitely like product controls ultimately the pricing and packaging yeah. decision but because we're close to the customer and we are uh, we have a lot of the distribution data we can help inform yeah, them give you give them that data that yeah, what you the data the, the input will pay for. Okay. correct to make like you know better decisions okay. and then there's a bunch of like you know a lot of like executive like in any strategy function there's always an element of executive support hmm. so anytime like uh, for instance today when we go out and present our business uh, to Mark Benioff who is um, the CEO, CEO of Salesforce um you know the team will probably help and uh, spend some time like, sure. you know, working on telling the story crafting the message yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, whatever it. it is yeah but this is great priya because uh, i you know i've seen like a lot of mba grads especially right mm-hmm. you know end up in some kind of like a sales strategy and operations kind of role it's a role that you see very often but i've never really understood what do these people do i'm sure it's important but, like, you know, <laughs> so now i have a good understanding so i also wanted to sort of walk through a typical project just to get a sense for the kind of activities you might engage in in a project so is there a project that stands out in your mind you yeah. know either it was very interesting or just stuff or just um and we can then yeah. go to the stages of that project um um so one of the this is a recurring project but one of the most important things that my team does is um we do like monthly business reviews hmm. and essentially we are putting together a fact back around the business. So it's very similar to all the funnel analysis that I talked about. So we'd look at like you know again the number of leads that are coming in, do we have appropriate conversion, are there any conversion drop-offs across the funnel, are we resourced appropriately, what does attainment look like across the teams to make sure that we've set goals in a thoughtful fashion. Um we look at like you know what kind of pipeline are we bringing in and this pipeline to ACV is like essentially our um, it's it's not the equivalent of revenue but without getting into all the details essentially mm-hmm. think of it mm-hmm. as the dollar value of whatever mm-hmm. we close at the end of the um at the end of the sale so is are there like you know any breakpoints over there so we spend a lot of time like obsessing about these uh types of questions so I'm trying to think I mean it sounds like do you think it's a very like a uh, analysis heavy kind of role then like because yes. it's like just pulling a lot of data from sales force It's very data driven yeah. um but it doesn't stop at analysis the person who is successful in this role is someone who can pull the data but then make sense of the data and can have a perspective on what you will change in the business mm-hmm. if you can't do that last part mm-hmm. i mean you're probably good as an analyst yeah. you are certainly not good as a sales strategy and operations person especially as you think of people more senior i see yeah. okay so apart from, so like if i were to think about the key activities you would be doing in this role depend and of course depending on the kind of problem you're trying to solve for it will vary but there's a big part of data analysis mm-hmm. and then apart from that what else would you think like in this example like when you're putting together these monthly reviews mm-hmm. so you do the data analysis you might come up with a recommendation based mm-hmm. on what the data is telling you mm-hmm. do you do something else like is there a lot of uh, socializing involved of your recommendation or 
or like going out and speaking with customers or yeah socialization not so much because it's a much smaller company so That's things true. can you know move quicker and nimbler there's just not that many people if you yeah. will to socialize yeah. with we do we so the audience for this uh the monthly business reviews is the entire sales management hierarchy. So the person who heads sales, person who heads GTM, and GTM is go-to-market, so it's both sales and post-sales. And then all the sales managers, all the post-sales uh, mm-hmm. functional leaders will all come together and like, you know, we'll take a look at the data. And essentially what coming out of that meeting, often we will have very concrete things that we're gonna chase down. So going back to your earlier question around projects, um, so let me give you an example from the post-sales side, because we've talked a lot about the sales side of the house. Um, so on the post-sales side, we look at churn as a very important metric mm. that every single SaaS company uh, obsesses or should obsess with. So as you think about bringing churn under control, some churn happens at the time that your uh, that contracts are up for renewal. But even during the year when people are supposed to be locked into a contract, you can still have churn. Mm. For instance, it could be that somebody goes out of business. So um, you're not going to get money from them. Right, exactly. Um, So understanding what's the quality of customers that you're selling to, for instance, is your bad debt rate essentially going up. It's It's not terribly controllable, but it's something important to know at the same time. Um, also, and even though I said that it might not be uh, like, you know, it's not terribly controllable, there are controllable aspects of it. Mm. Because, for instance, you may want to make sure that people who are approving like these refunds, like are we being thoughtful about the approval processes? Have we like, you know, put the right like gating mechanisms? Yeah, are we putting the right example. offers? Yeah. Right. Okay. So these are things like, you know, we call it off cycle churn internally. Mm. So we've been chasing down, for instance, off cycle churn. Gotcha. Could okay. be like, you know, one specific initiative. Yeah. Or something else that we might think of is that as our renewals book has grown exponentially, it's not possible to do like the the hero model in which we served customers before, right? Where every single customer gets the exact same kind of high touch um, uh, renewal conversation. Oh, so you might vary we, that a little bit. That's right. We mm-hmm. So for some of the smaller accounts, we've tried to put in place, you know, some scalable um, mechanisms mm-hmm. where you have like, you know, a large, uh, maybe like uh, you start things out with like bigger email blasts rather than having the renewal manager pick up the phone. Yeah. Right. I Whereas see. you do, so all of these, like even designing that model like what are those thresholds at which we're going to cut off and uh, implement different types of processes people on my team have been involved in some I of see. those okay. no this is very helpful because it just gives a flavor for the kind mm-hmm. of things you might be working right, on right. right and I think the other thing which will be very interesting to talk about is the kind of roles in terms of hierarchy maybe that you can expect in this kind of uh, like a function so for example you're at a director level right Mm -hmm. so now you have a big team that you're managing Mm -hmm. but let's say someone is out of undergrad or maybe grad school so to take an to take an analogy in consulting you'll have analyst associate manager Mm -hmm. principal etc right so similarly in this if you can give us like a flavor for what are the how is the team yeah put together yeah um, so I can talk a little bit about my team. I would say that it's not very standard, though. Okay. I think it really depends so much on, uh, like, you know, uh, the context of the business, the size of the business, even sometimes the the leaders, the individual team leaders' philosophy. Hmm. So, for instance, I like flat teams, lean teams with people who have, like, you know, large job scopes rather than layering up a team too much because personally I feel like the the, the like you know the the further off you are from a certain point it's mm. harder and harder for you right. to have visibility yeah. and to really feel like you're empowered to make decisions in the business mm. so that's just like a personal philosophy 
Um, so on my team, we've operated in different ways. Um, we usually have a couple of people like, you know, maybe focus on the sales side. Some people focus on the post sales side. So that's like one way of dividing it up. There have been times when I've tried to do it a little bit more, almost project based or initiative based in the sense that people would be able to cut across lines. So maybe you have a subject matter expertise in sales, but you also once in a while get to do something which okay. is more of a post sales problem. I see. So it could be that. Let me talk a little bit about how Salesforce does it because they have a much, much larger yeah. Yeah, sales strategy and operations functions. I've got a sense of how they're organized. So they actually organize a little bit by, um, and this is, uh, I, I think you will find more uh, examples of this in the industry as well, in a business partner model. So what does that mean? Essentially, they organize their hierarchy so that people are mapped to people in the sales hierarchy. Hmm. So at Salesforce, you have like the enterprise business unit, you have a commercial business unit, and then you have the emerging small business unit. And essentially the difference between those three different units is how large are the companies that you're essentially selling into. Um, so you might have, an, you do actually have like, I think they're EVPs at each of those levels. So you might have someone at my level who is mapped uh, to each EVP. And then each of those EVPs may have like, you know, several SVPs who are um, who are, have mapping. like different yeah segmentations and then similarly on the sales strategy and operations side you have a team where where people reporting to me would essentially be mapped to those SVPs and would work in a business but why you map to people in sales because are you enabling the sales team is that why um no you're not enabling the sales team enablement is actually a separate function hmm. usually in most uh sales organizations will have like a market readiness slash enablement function which also sales strategy and operations serves so for instance i on my team like i know i didn't uh, talk very much about that in the examples i gave but we have talked about for instance how do you measure the success of the enablement function or where do you plug in enablement but going back to your question of like why do you do the mapping um the i, I think the logic behind that mapping is that you are essentially an advisor, you are helping to solve whatever the top of mind problems are of the sales leader. Hmm. So for instance, if somebody comes in and says tomorrow that, hey, we need to focus more on enterprise, like for whatever reason, we feel that we're not getting, um, uh, and I'm just making this up, this this is a completely hypothetical example. Like we're not getting what we want out of enterprise deals. That's an interesting problem that somebody then needs to go and chase down. Like, why is that? Is it because like I could think of different reasons, like maybe your product isn't enterprise ready. Maybe you haven't organized your sales force the correct way. I see. Uh, yeah. So it couldn't be any So sales might come to sales strategy and ops to say, this is a problem that we're seeing. Can you help us figure out why this exactly. is the case? Okay. Yes. I see. And in, within this mapping that you described, the roles within sales strategy and ops group might the as you become more and more senior are you just handling bigger and bigger projects is that the difference then um in terms of seniority yes i would say so yeah and even the level the i i think the way to think about it is almost that a sales leader will get more um in terms of you know advice judgment perspective if you will of a more senior person versus somebody like an account manager um sorry so like, because you said that there's mapping to each of the individual salespeople. So like a sales leader might yeah. get way more advice than like just an individual account manager. So you're never mapped at the individual account manager level. Okay. You're always, you're just mapped to different people, uh, like different levels of hierarchy in the sales management structure. Mm-hmm. So like whether you're mapped to a sales leader who's an EVP or maybe a sales leader who's an SVP. 
And I don't actually think we have any mappings under that. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's, it's everybody is mapped to a leadership level. level. Okay. Yeah. I would just say that if you think about like, you know, what is the higher up you go in any function, you're essentially looking at more ambiguous problems, hmm. right? More like, you know, the, the problems might be of bigger scope. Like instead of solving it for, it's one thing to solve it for a team of 40 people. It's quite a different thing to solve it for a team of 4,000 right, people, right, right. right? So those types of complexities is what distinguishes even like where people are placed along I the sales see. hierarchy and similarly those map to the type of problems that, that someone sense. in sales strategy okay. will deal with. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right, so this was this is super helpful because I think this is a great overview mm-hmm. of what this function is. So now I would love to get into some of the more, you know, um, just your personal thoughts on this job. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think are the most interesting aspects of working in sales strategy and ops? For me personally, it's the fact that I get to put on a general management hat every day huh. and take a look at this business. It really feels like operating a part of the business myself. Mm -hmm. Do I actually get to do that directly? No, not by a long shot. I would be disingenuous if I suggested that. But I love the fact that I'm able to put that hat on and ask myself that if I had owned this business or if I was running this function and I saw this problem, what's that concrete decision or what's that change I would make? I think that's, for me, that's the most exciting. What supports that is this thought process of of analytical problem solving, Uh which is something that, you know, I've been trained to do right from my first job out of college. Uh Um, And that's something that uh, I enjoy being able to look at data, tell a story, come up with concrete recommendations, and then make changes, and sometimes actually be able to see the effect of those changes, both good and bad. Yeah. I think that is, good uh, and bad. Yes, yeah. that is so, a very good learning. Do you, do you um, think that uh, your first point is very interesting, that you get to think like a general manager and think about what decision I would take if I were yeah. to own the business? Yeah. Do you think that's more a function of the fact that you're a director? Um and so you are someone who's pretty senior as opposed to someone who might be slightly more junior but still working in sales strategy and operations. I personally think it is a function of personality and training. Okay. Like, I don't actually think it has... Um, hmm. uh, like, you know, I, I, I don't put a lot of... Um, like, I don't think your level in an organization needs to constrain you. Hmm. You can always think like that. Hmm. If you are pushed to think like that, and if you're trained to think like that. Mm-hmm. So what do I mean by that? So today I have like, you know, um, four people on my team. A couple of people are a lot more junior. So they're only two years out of college versus two others are, I don't know, somewhere in like the seven, eight years experience range. So very different profiles. But um, whenever I, whenever there is a problem that anyone is solving, the question that I always ask them is, put your put yourself in the shoes of actually my manager who heads all of GTN. If you had the chance to make the decision, what is the decision you would make? It's obviously a lot easier for some, the more experience you have to relate to that level of thinking. But I don't think that thinking has to wait till you until get to you a certain point. Right. Absolutely. So let me put my question in a slightly different way. Um, what you described is something which I think anyone can feel in any function right like you can, i think to a certain you should, extent you should that's try true. and feel yeah. like you know like I, hey, I, I think so yeah exactly right like let's say you're the product manager that you know you want to think mm-hmm. that if i if i own this product mm-hmm. which you do mm-hmm. what would i do right mm-hmm. so is there something specific about the sales strategy and operations function very unique to this function which you might potentially not find very easily elsewhere that you that you think is interesting I think that while this is true of any function, 
I do think that your ability to feel it is a is a little bit different in the sense that you know you're you're close to like this function gives you're you're literally the last mile before mm. it hits the customer. It is the last mile, right? <laughs> yeah. That's like what the distribution function is. Yeah. So that I feel like that like I could ask these questions if I was sitting in a product design function too and and I should and I think they do ask slightly different types of like different flavors of the mm. same question. But um I feel that I'm able to ask the kind of changes that I can make and the questions that I specifically ask, like I don't feel like I could have if I wasn't yeah, I, as close to distribution. I think, yeah, I, I think what you're trying to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that almost that you do own the last mile. So the amount of impact you can have is probably a lot, even through small changes. So as an example, mm-hmm. let, let's say compare with legal, right? Yeah. Legal should also feel like they own, like, you know, if I were to own the business, what was the right legal decision? But the right legal decision probably may not have always, in all cases, the same level of impact on the revenue or the outcome as opposed to a decision in sales, per se. Is that is that... Um, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> That's not what you're yeah. saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I hesitate to say that. I think this is, as I said, it's so much, uh, this is really a function of my personality of individually. Yeah. Like, no matter what function, like, I've heard these types of arguments made. For instance, there are people on my team who will say, I like working in distribution because I'm close to the revenue. Hmm. I think you are close to the revenue no matter what function you're in. Hmm. You just need the right mindset for that. Okay. Okay. So that's no, why that's I hesitate. Good. No, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I want to probe you a little bit on that, right? Yeah. Because the reason I ask this question in most mm-hmm. of my discussions is that, uh, let's say, put yourself in the shoes of someone who is you know, relatively new in their career. They yeah. are not very clear what they want to do, right? Yeah. And then they hear your discussion and they're like, you know what, that doesn't really help me figure out if I want to go into product or sales, right? Yeah. And yours yeah. is not strictly sales, you know, like yeah. you're not selling, sure, selling, sure, sure. Yeah. right? So what will be helpful is if you can, like if you were to, let's say, persuade someone that, mm-hmm. you know, I think sales strategy and also would be a good function for you. Yeah. What would you tell them? What would I tell them? Hmm. Darn. Should have <laughs> recorded the pitches that I gave to the last two people I hired on my team. Um, I think I would tell them um, that would, I would certainly make the general management pitch. I will, like, I know I keep coming back to that, but I actually do think you're in a very good position to ask some of those questions, to answer some of those questions and implement those changes because of where you sit in the business. I would say that's one. Second thing I would say, if you've ever dreamed of being in a function which is there's a lot of like analytical decision making involved, if that appeals to you, I think this is a good function uh, to go into. Um, I think the third thing that I would say is that um, you can parlay this into a lot of different career choices down the line. Right. Because you will be building a skill set that is that is essentially like being like a strong problem solver. You're going to have great data analysis skill sets. You're going to build like a a people in this function. You're going to have to. It's an influence function. Right. So there's a lot of like consensus building, a lot of executive presence, especially when you're presenting to people who are a lot more senior. Um, Those are like fantastic base skill sets that you can then take and parlay into any other function. I think it gives you like, you know, also structured thinking, like all of those things kind of are used and um, you have to really flex that muscle. Um, So I think that that's another thing that that would appeal and I would put that in the pitch. (laughs) And then the last thing I would say is that if you think a lot like an industrial engineer, then this is a function that will appeal to you. So what do I mean by that? 
Um, you are, um, at some level, this function is a lot about how do you design things to scale well, um, right? Like how do you, when you have a sales, uh, when you have a sales team of five people versus like, you know, a bigger sales team of 50 people versus a mini army of 500 versus a true army of 5,000. Like how do you put in place right. uh, processes where, you know, yeah. all of these people can align and achieve a certain aim that you have? And uh, how do you streamline processes? Like how do you take out bottlenecks? How do you make sure that certain interactions are happening the right way? Things are being captured in a standardized fashion so that you are able to analyze and tell a story about the business. Those are actually non-trivial problems. So anybody who enjoys thinking and like how do you drive like, you know, throughput through this type of a system, right. anyone who enjoys that kind of industrial engineering thinking will probably That's find very, this yeah. function I think rewarding. that I think I've, you finally hit like, finally <laughs> <laughs> took a lot of time leading the horse to the water <laughs> no it's, I think it's also like you know, it really depends yeah. person to person like yeah some people respond differently to different questions mm-hmm. do you think there's an element of organization design also in what you're doing for sure, yeah. Like, do you yeah, guys think absolutely. about like how many sales reps report to how many whatever manager? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Okay. Part of like when I think about uh, going back to a question I think you asked me a, a while back around projects. So at the start of this year, we essentially doubled our sales team. So we had to make a lot of decisions around what does the team structure look like? Um, and um, like, you know, uh, how you uh, structure your team will essentially drive right. a lot of outcomes. Like right. anybody who's been to business school probably remembers a line around like, you know, what was it? Strategy follows structure sure, or something. Yeah, but yeah. those two things are very intertwined. Sure. So you definitely get to see that a lot. Um, and even outside of that, like in organizationally, for instance, answering questions like, um, the add-on, um, the add-on upgrade part of your, um, like, you know, um, oh, you can uh, the give, upsell like, stuff. No, no, sorry. Deal. The upsell slash upgrade part of your uh, revenue, hmm. whether that should be led by people in the sales organization or whether that should be owned by the post-sales organization. How do you exactly oh, goal see. these yeah. teams? How do you make sure that the handoffs are smooth? Those are actually tricky questions as well. Yeah. And they're questions. I mean, it's all about like the right motivation for every person, right? And Correct. where do you draw the line? Yeah. yeah. So, and the flip side of the interesting part. So like what aspects do you find challenging about this job? So not not necessarily hard. I mean, I'm sure this is a hard mm-hmm. job, but in particular things that you think are challenging. Like what I don't like? It's up to you how you want to answer it. <laughs> yeah. um, I think the things that are challenging about this job, again, so much of this really comes down to individual personality. So I would say that people shouldn't anchor to like, you know, one person's answer. It's almost like try out, yeah. figure out if this is for you or not. Um, I have heard some people say that sometimes they feel like it can get very analytically heavy. Hmm. Um, it's It can almost be a little bit too data-driven. So again, I would say uh, to someone evaluating a career or a job um, in, in, in this type of a function, figure out what your comfort level is. And I mean, definitely not for someone who doesn't like data, for example. For sure. <laughs> but even when you like data, like some people would love to like, you know, if uh, it's like some people enjoy like heavy number crunching and even the way sales ops is kind of moving with uh, web-based businesses, you have a lot more data. So there is always this push to crunch more data. Mm. And sometimes the incremental data crunch may or may not yield results, if Mm. you will. So I think that part can be challenging um, for some people. Um, I think the second thing, this is very personal to me, 
um, this this comes back to my personal desire of always being an aligned function. Um, so when I think of like you know my long term career, um, like my my long term career goal, I um, as much as I've I've had a wonderful time in this function, love the way we think. But I would take this and I actually want to be a GM of a business rather than stay somewhat outside it. So I have found that to be like, you know, a personal tension where I can influence an outcome, but I still don't 100% okay. control it. But then, as you said, that this does equip you with the right skills. So maybe you can Absolutely. make that transition exactly. at some point. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and then there are different types of people. Like I talk to like people on my team or other people who have done uh, these types of roles. Some people actually like being on the advisory side. Mm. That's just what they want. Mm. Um, and there are some great advantages to being on it. For me personally, if tomorrow somebody said that, hey, you could be like, you know, um, like you could do, you could solve some of these problems as you do uh, by being like, you know, a, a head of sales or a head of marketing or whatever, or go ahead demand generation, I would probably pick that role yeah. because for that's me personally, that's where I want to be. Gotcha. Right. Okay. So I think that can be another, uh, you know, it can matter to some people. Um, I think the other thing that I would say in, in the role is... Um, it can be, I think you've got to be okay with ambiguity because um, many of, like, no matter how much data you have, at the end of the day, it will not always tell you a clear story. So a lot of it is around having the comfort to test, iterate, use your judgment, be wrong, and then, um, you know, keep moving. I think, um, and, and not everybody has the appetite for that. Right. And I, I think the example that could be a good one for over here is that the th- thing that we talked about, like the part art, part science, which is mm-hmm. that, you know, how much quota. Right. Data can only point you, yeah, exactly. you know, to, yeah. to an extent. Right. After that, you have to just take a call. Right. 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 Okay. right. Yeah. And are there any common mistakes that you found people make in this role or in this function? Maybe let's say when they're early in their careers. There isn't anything terribly function specific, but given that my challenge to people is always, um, can you, um, like, what would you do? What would you actually decide to do? I think um, sometimes early career professionals tend to think that the the, the analytics, the modeling, it's like, you know, I built a wonderful model. That's everything. Exactly. And uh, I think as um, I think the only reason I have some gray hair on my head is because I've come to realize and I certainly and I, I think my best taste of this was actually in my job at Amazon where I actually owned the PL. It's like sometimes the best analytics in the world don't mean a damn thing because um, you may try something logic points you in that way. But for a whole bunch of factors, some of which you may have predicted, some of which you have not outcomes don't necessarily always end yeah. up exactly that way right and part of the the challenge in this function and something that you should hopefully enjoy is like it's okay i i made my best guess hmm. and now my best guess has to change and what do i do next and you know continuously so comfort with that being that. able to just change your own recommendation or change your own hypothesis as you absolutely. get more and more data absolutely okay. Right. yes okay and recognizing that the model isn't where it ends really where it like till rubber meets the road your model doesn't mean anything Anything. yeah it's just the first step right Mm -hmm. yeah are there any stressful situations that you uh run into in this job i'm sure there are on your face (laughs) absolutely can you give an example so let me say this anybody who does this job 
with the level of seriousness that this job um, should, um, in my mind, should entail, you will find this job stressful. Because think a little bit about it. Like, you're setting quota, right? You're setting um, a goal. It's a goal that actually determines somebody else's compensation. If you don't take that decision seriously, and if you aren't stressed out when you feel that people aren't attaining, like, you know, your guess essentially about the business is wrong, you should be stressed. Yeah. In my mind, like, I don't want somebody on my team who who's not, not stressed. No one's meaning quota. Not like, you know, not stressed, yeah. like in stress in a bad way. What I mean to say is that you should obsess about that. You should feel the accountability because otherwise it's like you're essentially operating in an ivory tower, right? Like I can come in and say, oh, quota is 100K for like these X many salespeople. Sure, anybody can come up with a number. Like unless you feel that accountability that I've wanted to like set a good goal, a fair goal, it is driving the right outcomes on the team. And many, many times you will be wrong because it is a freaking hard decision to get right. If you don't have that level of accountability, whether you want to call that stressful or not, you shouldn't be in the job in my mind. Yeah. I, so one thing which I want to clarify, I think, um, so on the one hand, you talk, you are, you know, you're the one who's setting, you know, the territory and the compensation and all mm-hmm. of that. On the other hand, you're an, an advisory function. Mm-hmm. So how, I didn't get, I don't get it. So how, like, yeah. so you, you mean that the sales guys are the ones who are actually like implementing the territory? Is that the distinction? Um, so in those types of, uh, in, in some of the specifics that you called out, like, you know, territories, quota and compensation, um, in the end, why I say you're an advisor is at the end of the day, and again, this depends a lot, like on how uh, functions are structured, who you're reporting into, et cetera, et cetera. But generally speaking, the head of sales will have, should have probably the final say, I would say, yeah, at, okay. uh, at some level. Huh. Um, so at least in our case, like any of these decisions, I, I make very strong recommendations but the ultimate, the like the yay or nay, yeah. if you will, still gotcha. comes from the head of sales. So that makes sense. Uh, but there are like one of the reasons that you do keep these functions separate and don't completely like you know make them part of the sales. Like in Salesforce, these are actually two separate functions. Is because you want someone to still have a lot of objectivity. So yeah, otherwise right? the sales guy will just do whatever works for them. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Precisely. No, that, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Okay. No, and thanks for clarifying because mm-hmm. I was like, I don't get it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, it's a fair <laughs> so, point. Yeah. All right. So then. I'm going to switch the uh, the context a little bit more from the point of view of recruiting. Mm-hmm. So let's say you were to replace yourself and <laughs> okay. you know, find someone to replace yourself and yeah. you had to pick five qualities in yeah. that person. What would those five qualities be? And I, this is like, I'm just trying to understand like, you know, what kind of person would, would enjoy or thrive mm-hmm. in this job? Yeah. Definitely somebody who's a um, A class analytical problem solver, mm-hmm. like that we've talked about, you know, a bunch. It's very clear. No? Yeah, very very clear. Clear. yeah, that's very important. You have to have yeah. like, and and more than like, and I don't want to use the word data. I actually want to use analytical problem solving because whether or not you have the data, the ability to think like you know in a very logical, structured fashion, and break down a problem, and break yeah. down a problem like that is critical, especially mm-hmm. if you're thinking like at my level. Um, I think the second thing that I would say is. Somebody who, you know, brings judgment and perspective to the table and isn't somebody who just stops at the analytics, because this is ultimately I think of this as a um, as a, uh, you know, decision facilitating or like, you know, helping make decisions is essentially the way I think about my role. So I think that's a pretty critical uh, thing that I would say as well. I think the third thing I would say is 
having prioritization skills. In any team like this, you're going to get a million requests. And even any time you look at a business, there are, there's going to be always a whole bunch of things that aren't performing exactly the way you want to. Having, again, that judgment and that prioritization of where do I plug in? What do I spend time? What should I care about? What moves the needle? I think that's a pretty critical mm. skill yeah. to uh, bring to the table. Um, uh, not necessarily specific to the function, but specific more to the role that I'm in, for sure, team building skills. Yeah. Like, you know, can you actually recruit, um, onboard, motivate, and manage people sure. well? Yeah. Um, I think th- that's four by my count. Um, I think the last thing that I would say, let me make sure that I haven't. Oh, influencing skills. Yeah, that's what for I was sure. going to bring up. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, I was actually surprised that key. I seem to have yeah. <laughs> so skipped like, over that. That seems to be very important yeah. in this one. Like, yeah. you know, so you first come up with your recommendation, but now yeah. you have to convince your sales guy or your marketing guy or product guy. Right. Or gal. Yeah. About yeah. Your, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And have you seen that, you know, over and above this, I mean, by now you must have worked with you know, a lot of people in this function. Mm-hmm. Are there any things that make the really, you know, superbly awesome people in this function is there anything that makes them stand out yeah um i think one thing that i would say like a, a whole like different um like all of these like you know even the skills that i uh, talked about like they have different levels of depth and different levels of flavor that people can get to but i think one of the big things that um that at least i have personally seen like you know help someone stand out is it's almost like an obsession if you will with the problem um what do i mean by that if if you have the mindset that somebody is going to give you a well-defined problem and you're going to go and chase it down to an answer you will be good but i don't think you will be great the great person looks for problems needs to be able to ask the right questions actually that's probably the other very important skill that i would put yeah because this is no longer, unlike like, you know, for instance, like I came from like a consulting background. I've hired a lot of ex-consultants on the team as well. And generally speaking, the challenge that I see with them is that sometimes they're expecting someone to give them a well-defined, well-framed problem. That's not how real business works. Real business is a lot more bottoms up. It's like you get all these different signals and you've got to figure out what's the signal versus what's the noise. You've got to figure out how to ask the right question, how you will frame it the right way, because the way you frame the question will determine the answer that you get to. And um, so I think that's an incredible skill that makes somebody great. I think the second thing that I would say along the same lines is you have to have an exploratory mindset. It cannot, again, be that mindset of, okay, this is like the well-defined, well-contained. While you need to bring structure to anything, you also need to, you've got to like build that judgment of, okay, where do I like peel one level deeper versus, you know, where is like enough is enough. So, and and that's not exactly a very easy skill. I struggle with that like every day. Because you need to have a pulse on like all of these different things happening and then be able to take a step back to say what's important and what's not. That's not easy to do at all. Right. And it's also like this, it's it's almost like, you know, you um, like, in many cases, especially maybe because we're a new business, we've seen certain oddities in the data which we haven't been able to ex- uh, quite explain. Like going that, like having that appetite to be like a self-starter and go to the next level. And then again, if you don't find a good enough answer, being creative and like, you know, trying to, it's almost like it's a little bit of a fishing expedition. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to be willing 
to put in the work and um and and, and have fun essentially yeah, in that fishing yeah, expedition yeah. and some people don't like it because some people will say oh i don't really understand why i'm doing this it's almost like you've got to find that meaning a little bit bottoms up in yeah. my experience yeah. so i would say that's another thing that i that's think helpful. makes people great like truly great yeah. yeah yeah and i thought there was another thing that came to mind and i I forgot. If I remember, if you I will remember, mention you can bring it. it up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, you've hired a lot of ex-consultants on the team. So do you think, like, what is a typical background for this particular function? Um, yeah. Um, I think anybody who comes uh, from, like, you know, a consulting function or a corporate strategy function. Um, I have also co- um, considered people from actually any kind of professional services. Mm. Really would. And again, it depends a little bit on tenure. Mm. So if I'm looking at very junior people, like, you know, zero to, I don't know, let's say three to four years out of college, I would consider anybody who um, who has like, you know, a basic financial modeling skills, basic executive presence and communication, uh, good communication skills and the most important analytical problem solving mm-hmm. skills. Mm-hmm. And I don't anchor very much to somebody who has need to have done this job before. Um, I give people like the way my interview process usually works is I give people like, you know, real world business problems that have come up in the function and I see that is this person able to think through this yeah okay and if you can to me that's enough if I'm looking for somebody more senior I probably will look for someone who's done something a little bit similar in context personally I don't care very much about whether they've done it for distribution but let's say even if somebody came from like you know a product strategy background or if they've done like some kind of um, operations analysis in a different industry or whatever I think those would be fair game as well but and do you have to have an MBA uh, not in my view. No, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and do you hire people straight out of undergrad? Um, I personally don't. Okay. Um, I I'm unaware of whether Salesforce does or doesn't. I could. I. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. And I only. Like you could potentially join as some kind of an analyst on the team, right? You can join as an analyst on the team. Absolutely. You probably have one to two years experience out of college. And here's the reason, like, why I think in a larger company, that's why I brought up Salesforce, like you know, the corporate parent. Um, because there are much larger teams and um, um, they will have the bandwidth to train you. For me, That's it's true. a lot easier yeah. to like, you know, That's have typical, somebody. Yeah, yeah like startup courses. Yeah, they yes. want people who are like a little bit trained. Yeah, exactly. I see. Okay. Like if I had the time, I would love to train somebody straight out of college, <laughs> but I probably won't. Yeah. So it's a little bit easy for me to get that leverage. Yeah. And what's a, what's a good way to apply and maybe not necessarily in the context of Salesforce IQ, uh, mm-hmm. but is it like, do you just go on the website to apply? Do you try and get a referral? What's a, what have you seen works? Um, uh, I would say that in most cases, just um, yeah, look at all the different channels and postings, um, apply referrals always help. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's pretty much the general job search. Yeah. Um, I think as people move higher and higher up in the ladder, I think it becomes a little bit more of like, you know, tapping your network, conversations, etc. So I would say it yeah. looks very similar, similar to, to most other job functions. And is there any, anything specific that you look for before you actually call people in for an interview? Yeah. What do you think a candidate can do to really stand out in the beginning? Um, that's a really good question. I think I would say know the company. Know, um, uh, like, know the product. Like, usually the recruiter does the first level screening for us, and I'm uh, pretty sure that's pretty standard across the industry. I think what makes you stand out in those cases is whether you bring, like, some knowledge of the company, whether, you know, you're able to speak in, uh, speak in an informed fashion 
about what could be some of those top of mind, you know, questions, problems that people might be dealing with. Or even sometimes, like, if you can make analogies to, like, things that you may have seen in a different job, I think those can help. I see. Okay. But then are you expecting knowledge of Salesforce or Salesforce IQ at a business level? Or are you expecting some kind of very specific, like, sales ops or sales strategy specific knowledge? More the former. Okay. Yeah, I see. Yeah, not, I not I, I rarely yeah. ever test anyone on anything functional because, yeah. quite honestly, I think if you are a good problem solver and if you can put on your business hat and if you have a good manager who's willing to uh, support and coach you, hmm. the the I I almost think context is something that can be learned. Yeah. It's much more those underlying foundational skills, the personality that I'm really looking right. for. And another thing which I'm curious about is, and I think you you alluded to this earlier in the discussion that you wanted to get into a more of a function line management kind of role Mm -hmm. and you got interested in sales or the distribution side Mm -hmm. and you picked Salesforce because you know that it's really important here. Mm -hmm. So there is this aspect of choosing your company carefully that, you know, like let's say a company like Apple, like Mm -hmm. you said, is probably more product focused than sales, Mm -hmm. right? So how, how can someone figure out how strategic this function is to that overall company? Um, it's an it's an excellent question. I think what I would say is that it also depends on your tenure, like how important it is. I think if you're at the um, if you if you're more like early career junior, whatever uh, moniker you want to use, uh, I would say don't worry about it. Huh. Go get the expertise because regardless of where you are, you're going to learn like you know fantastic skills. And it's always easier to progress in a certain function when you already have that function on your resume. That just goes without saying. It's general career advice. Um, I think as you move up more senior, it's something to think about. Again, it depends very much on whether you're planning to stay with the with the company for a mm-hmm. while or whether you see in this, like, you know, see this as like a two to three year stint and then you're going to do something mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, distribution problems interest me. Mm. I think that, you know, distribution is a fascinating realm. And the advantage of sitting in the kind of function that I have within Salesforce is that I am getting to see one of the best in class distribution organizations in the world exactly. operate every day. Yeah. I get to work with sales leaders who are very seasoned and their advice, their coaching, even as we're approaching some of these ambiguous questions, as I've alluded to before, the data doesn't give you the perfect hmm. answer. Hmm. It's really the collective judgment of all of us that gets implemented finally. So to be able to hear those opinions at the table, I know that I've got like some fantastic people over there, you know, who are like a lot of experience, exactly, that I can learn from and absorb. So that's essentially a little bit of why I pivot to that. Yeah. But again, with um, in terms of like finding out like how um, important is this function within a company, I would say any company which has a B2B Salesforce will have a will have right. a function like this. I think this, B2B makes a big critical. difference, right? Like sales becomes much more important. Then. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you won't even find this function in a B2C company, in my experience. Because you yeah. don't have a Salesforce, so. essentially. Yeah. Unless you're, yeah. yeah, that's true. Okay. And then are there any uh, books or like any resources, something that you might want to recommend for someone who is exploring this role or just wants to learn more about this space? I don't know if there is. Like yeah. this might be an odd question for this particular. Yeah, I've actually never, never used anything. Yeah, it's yeah. almost making me feel a little bit ignorant. Yeah, I'm sure, know. there is. I yeah, I don't know. And, yeah, uh, it's but like okay, so maybe not specific to sales strategy and ops, but maybe something that helps in recruiting or something. So because it sounds like it. You know, maybe a lot of your interviews might be like case case mm-hmm. interviews. Right? Yeah. So uh, have you found any resources that are helpful for that? 
I mean, go to, I think it's like, think of it a little bit like recruiting for a consulting mm-hmm. job. Go to the consulting websites, like I think McKinsey, BCG, Bain, at least when I recruited for consulting back in the dinosaur days, <laughs> they had great practice cases. Yeah. So they can they can always be helpful. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a bunch of other like, you know, case uh, case books that people have at least used. Yeah. Um, I think that's when you're starting out. For most people who will look at this job like two, three, four years out of college and plus, you're, you probably have already got the base case skills. I think the best way for for that audience to prepare for a job is essentially um, read the news. Hmm. I can't tell you how many people come in who don't seem to have a great sense of um, of 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 uh, the industry, hmm. and that it's this is something that I just believe across the board. If you want to be a business leader, know what the heck what's is happening, happening in business, <laughs> right? So what's this? What's the yeah. strangest? question or comment you might have heard in one of these interviews um nothing too out of the way but uh, for instance like you know when i ask people like why they want to work in technology for a while everybody would basically like the answers would boil down to they were fascinated by technology because they like their iphone and it's (laughs) like yeah seriously and what and and that's not necessarily a bad answer it's just that maybe you really do like your iphone but when probed you have to have you know a good second level backup for it like it shouldn't just be yeah i think it's snazzy it looks pretty it looks cool like dude like that's everybody across the universe thinks so so why should i hire you right so i would say like you know read TechCrunch, read like um uh, read um the wall street journal and it's less about like maybe macroeconomic things are not might not be as applicable like what i'm trying to say is that you want to have a sense of where some of the major companies in the industry are heading if there's interesting news think a little bit like even like i do this as thought exercises sometimes like i think about companies like you know uber lyft or um i don't know rula la like it pick anything it does they have they don't have to be within a certain vertical think think about the business models of these companies like what makes them interesting uh, what do you think like if they had to get to like you know the next x million dollars in revenue what do you think they would have to do ask yourself those questions because yeah. Giving yourself those brain teasing questions essentially yeah. prepares it's you a good way to for play. a lot of yeah. like what these interviews Feels are good. about. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Priyadarshini. This <laughs> yeah, was this was really good. No, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Is there anything, any other As advice? No, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> any other advice you'd like to share? Other advice I'd like to share on. Um, the not function. necessarily the function. It's up to you. Like you know, parting advice about the function about tech about recruiting I'll give a piece of general advice uh-huh. that um, I've given uh, people a lot um, two things one uh, don't pick the role pick the manager the manager makes the role uh-huh. like people 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 like I remember hearing this at McKinsey and thinking oh yeah sure whatever <laughs> like everyone's supposed to be good people here but if like when I think about every single role and how how successful I've been in it, how much I've enjoyed it, how much I've learned from it, all of that in such a big way is tied to the manager. manager. So pick yeah. the manager, not the role. That's my first piece of advice. The second that I would say is that it's always good to be good when things are going good. Um, I think it's really in the moments of um, 
where discord or the moments of like you know when you feel like you've lost your way that's essentially what defines you as a person so um my general advice to everyone is just uh, be welcoming of failure i don't think it's easy a lot of people think that they're welcoming of it but at least i have observed behaviors of the people who say they are that <laughs> necessarily so aren't <laughs> yeah so um embrace it i think um embrace it internalize it acknowledge it don't get demoralized by it uh because it really is about like and maybe you actually made the right decision with the data that you had at the time hmm. and but the world continuously changes on you so really it's about like embracing the failure having always this um um like keep a mind keep an open mind that things are always changing around you that you want to learn and absorb and iterate and like you know redirect and repivot yourself um i think people who have that adaptability that flexible mindset um in my opinion are people who succeed absolutely all right yeah. well thank you so much for the listening and uh, thank you take care bye bye okay bye bye <laughs> All right, so that was Pradarshini on sales strategy and operations. If you enjoyed today's discussion as much as I did, you should subscribe to the podcast. Simply check out our website at www.learneducatediscover.com where you'll find links to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher where you can subscribe to the podcast and while you do that, you should leave us a review. It really really means a lot. On the website you'll also find a list of all the previous episodes as well as links to other helpful resources such as sample cover letters list of books recommended by our guests on the show and you can also subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter of course if you have any questions at all for priyadarshini or for me you can email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at led_curator You can also like our page at facebook.com forward slash learn educate discover and if you do that you'll start getting updates on all the wonderful content that we are putting together specially for you guys right there in your Facebook newsfeed. All right that's it for today thank you so much for your time and for listening and until the next one bye bye